electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The record amount of money flowing into the tech sector as that space hits another new all-time high. The Investment Committee debating whether the Nasdaq's big run this week can continue and, of course, how best to play that. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, John Najarian, and Liz Young is with us, BNY Mellon's Director of Market Strategy. I'll take you to uh, the markets, to the wall, uh, as we always do. Stocks are going for their best week, by the way, since November. The VIX is falling. Stimulus is moving ahead. You've got positive vaccine news, strong earnings. Those are very much the drivers today. S&P, NASDAQ, Russell, all at new records. We're still waiting for the Dow to do that just as well. I I do want to kick the conversation off with tech. I I do want to let you all know as well, as Carl mentioned, we are waiting for the president to make what we think are going to be relatively brief remarks about the COVID uh, relief plan. We'll go there. We'll hear from the president. We don't expect he'll take any questions. We'll come back and then trade some more stocks. But let's kick it off in the time that we have before we see President Biden. Joe, I'm coming to you first. Big week for the Nasdaq, right? Better than five and a half percent. You've got Fang going again. Uh, that trades very much back. It may have been in a little bit of a slumber from September for a few months, but it looks like it's woken up pretty, pretty lively. It certainly has, Scott, and with good reason. I think investors viewed the performance of the mega cap technology names and technology overall towards the end of 2020, and they saw it as kind of a pause and questioned whether it would refresh. While they were waiting for that refresh, they found opportunities in value. The calendar turned into January. The fundamentals were realized, the strength of those fundamentals once again, and new capital has come back into mega cap technology, technology overall. You've got a lot of names that are restarting the momentum and are actually breaking out right now. I agree with the move. I've said all along, don't move away from it. And certainly with a lot of the earnings that have uh, been released in the last week and a half, There's evidence, both fundamentally and technically, why investors want to stay with technology. Yeah, you're not lying about the money and the tremendous amount of money that's going into technology. Once again, Liz Young, Bank of America's flow show. We like to focus on it. It gives you an idea of where the big money is going. They've had a record $4.2 billion weekly inflow into tech equity funds. Quote, big client Zeitgeist in the past two weeks has unambiguously been to buy the FANG underperformance. They, of course, include Microsoft in that. And for good reason, uh, after their earnings week to date, Alphabet's up 13 percent. Microsoft's up four. Apple's up three and a half. Amazon's up three and a half, as is Facebook. Yeah, so let's separate it into two groups. There's mega cap tech which I think actually has a good correlation to just a recovery in the economy, cyclical stocks, even the 10-year. You see mega cap tech stocks move up as the 10-year yield moves up. But then there's the rest of tech. And the thesis there is if you think about once we get back to the pre-crisis level of GDP, then we start creating new growth. 
but we're going to do that with a smaller labor force. So how do we do that with a smaller labor force? We need them to be more productive. How do you boost productivity? Technology. So some of those smaller cap tech names, particularly things like software and services, are what are going to lead us after we get to the full recovery mode and we can create new real growth. Mega cap tech for now, again, to Joe's point, I wouldn't exit. It is what our economy is made up of today, but it's probably not going to see the outperformance that we've seen over the last 12 months. New record for software. Speaking of the IGV hitting a new record intraday high today. The, you know, the, the question then becomes, Jim, is it real? And does it have real legs? You know, as you get further along in, in the recovery, you're going to have more conversation about the recovery trade and the value trade. But these stocks are simply saying not so fast. You know, focus on where the consistent growth is, not where necessarily you're going to see some fits and starts as it relates to the economy getting back up again. Well, so yes, it is real. Um, I'm going to echo what uh, Joe and Liz have said that, you know, I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's either you're in tech or you're out of tech. Um, you know, Scott, I own Apple, uh, Google, Microsoft. Uh, I'm going to stick with them. They've been great. But you also know I have a lot of cyclical exposure, a lot of value stocks. And I've been consistent the last couple of weeks that saying the, the big cap tech is going to do just fine this year. But it's not, I don't think, going to be the market leader this year. It's had such a torrid run the last two years, frankly, the last five years. And when you look at the fundamental forces that are propelling either financials, which I know we're going to discuss a little bit later, or energy or industrials, just the fundamental forces of a new economic expansion, easy money, uh, infrastructure spending that may come, uh, just more economic activity in general. I, I think it's safe to say, I think it's rational to say that leadership this year will come from the cyclical value sectors, but tech is going to do just fine as well. You know, I want to focus on, on speaking of tech in a, the area I just mentioned, John, software. I mentioned the new record high. You've got some software exposure, as probably a lot of people do, because enterprise software has been one of the biggest outperformers within technology over the last year, certainly since the bottom. We've talked about it a lot because people like Brad Gerstner have come on our program and said that maybe some of the valuations have gotten a little ahead of themselves and need a bit of a reset, though month to date or year to date, I should, I should better say, uh, these stocks are going. Doc, uh, ServiceNow is up 10.5%. Zoom, popular as ever, up 13.5% after a pullback of its own. Workday now 17%. CrowdStrike's having a nice run of it. You've got Oracle, which is a bit of a leader. You've got Palantir and some of these other names. So what about software? Um, I think software is going to be one of the areas that you do want to look for uh, value there, Judge, as far as you know, some of these pullbacks, like that Oracle pullback. Um, like the Palantir pullback. I mean, I think both of those gave you opportunities rather than just reaching for the stars and, you know, grabbing some of these big names that have truly outperformed. I'll throw Zoom in there with it, Scott. They've made some pretty significant corrections, and I think that makes them all the more attractive right here because, again, in the case of Zoom, I know Josh has been long and strong in Zoom, um, it's come down from over 500 into the 300s. I think that was an opportunity uh, to get in there. I don't know that it goes right back into the 500s, Scott, but I think that that stock um, is something that people just have found that they really can't quite live without. Uh, you know, it, Microsoft Teams is great. Google Meet is great. 
but for just regular Joes and Janes that don't have a software package that they pay for on a monthly basis, like with Microsoft, or that don't maybe trust as much uh, Big Brother watching over them over at Google, I think you've got Zoom, and it has become like Kleenex. Um, it has become like Xerox. Um, it is what it is. I mean, it tells people what it does as far as it's become the name of how we communicate with each other. So I think of those that you mentioned and that I'm lucky enough to own, uh, Zoom is one that can continue to outperform. I want to know about Salesforce. You know, one, one of the marquee names, Jim Labenthal, in, in the software space. I think a lot of people probably have that in their portfolios. And after a, you know, a rest of its own, <clears throat> excuse me, a pullback, it's gotten going again, too. So, you know, the question when you see a pullback like this is whether it's a consolidation or the beginning of a downward trend. That's always the question. Um, since I recently initiated the position and added to it, I obviously think it's a consolidation. And there's a lot of things that we know here. We know Mark Benioff is a transformative leader, and that matters a lot. Um, frankly, the reason I got into it was the acquisition of Slack. Um, I, I think that's both a great defensive and offensive play. Offensively, it gives them a new business line. Defensively, it keeps Microsoft Teams and Zoom from encroaching, encroaching in on Salesforce's core business. So I, I just basically I see a transformative leader continuing to do transformative thing. And it's almost a it's almost a verb now in its own right. I mean, is there any company that doesn't have Salesforce in it right now? Yeah. You know, what I wanted to do, what I thought would be constructive for our viewers today, and, and I'm glad we, we pivoted to Salesforce because it's part of the list that I asked all of you to put together of some of your best tech picks and, and maybe off the beaten path. Maybe maybe that's over overstating it, but at least ones that we don't talk about every day and away from the most mega of mega cap technology stocks. Jim, NXP Semi is on your list. You bought more Qualcomm, too. Why should people follow you there? Well, basically, the secular trend is very strong and very intact in these two names. They're both chip manufacturers. NXP is more focused on automotive. We know that automotive sales are really going gangbusters right now, as they should in an early economic activity. Qualcomm's an interesting story. We know that they're the 5G intellectual property leader. Um, they had a little bit of a stumble this week. Now, I don't really think it was a stumble. I think it was a combination. The stock was ahead of itself. Uh, and frankly, they, they did well, but not well enough to meet those expectations. Stock's off 10%. To me, that's an opportunity. Scott, you know I've raised cash recently. If I don't get the market pullback, then I get the pullback in individual stocks like Qualcomm down 10%. 145, I think this will probably be close to 200. Uh, just on earnings growth, not multiple expansion, earnings growth by year end. So that's my way of putting some cash to work very easily, very comfortably. Just to be just to be clear, you're saying on the pullback that we witnessed, you bought more stock and you bought some calls just so people know you're actually making these specific moves that you're talking about right now. Thanks, Scott. Yes. Bought calls and options yesterday. Um, the, the stock is obvious. I'm sorry. Calls and stock. The stock is obviously long term. 
the calls are my way of saying I think this this beat down of 10, 11 percent is ridiculously overdone. Now, look, if you're buying calls, you got to be ready to lose all of your premium. John can write volumes about that. So that's just a little fun trade I'm doing. But long term is my vision in this stock. And, and that's why I own the shares and added to them yesterday. Speaking of chips, Joe, what you call the Rodney Dangerfield of the space is Texas Instruments. And frankly, it's <laughs> one that we and, uh, you know, a lot of other people don't talk about it all that much. Uh, but it's one of your picks in the tech universe that folks should take a look at. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's a uh, semiconductor name that offers a two and a half percent dividend. It's a company that trades at a reasonable valuation that my friend Jimmy could get comfortable with in the mid 20s. It's got 13% sales growth, which you know I like. And clearly, it has been a company which has had the technical performance over the last couple of years, but we just don't talk about it enough. Why? Because I think, unfortunately, we equate the semiconductors with the need to show us performance that's 50% or higher year on year. And I think that's just the wrong way to look at it. This is a name. It's a quality name. It's a name that belongs in uh, a large cap portfolio. It's a core semi holding and it's proving by every metric that it's delivering for you fundamentally. What's Viva Systems, which, frankly, I don't think we've ever talked about on this show. And if we have, uh, it was so long ago that I don't even remember. I will tell you, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's in my quality momentum index, so that's how I began to learn about this company. How about the fact that this company, which has a $44 billion market cap, just became a public benefit corporation? Now, it is the largest publicly traded company to take on that structure. Now, what does that mean? We all know about the world of ESG investing, but Scott, they've taken it a step further. They are balancing the shareholder with the employee, with the customer, and they are ensuring in their mission that they're going to be delivering to society something that has a public benefit. The public benefit is this software application that they partner with the life sciences industry with. So they're focused on health and wellness. This is a company that is growing at a 30% sales growth rate over the last three years. It's performing incredibly well. And it's a name, Scott, that we should be talking about more on the halftime report because it is a name going forward that is going to be included in more and more portfolios. You're not kidding. I mean, it's first of all, it's the highs of the day. Second of all, it's a $45 billion market cap company, uh, which is reason of itself, reason in itself uh, that it should get a little more love than perhaps um, it does. All right. So, Liz, again, the idea, you know, you can't pick individual names, but you can certainly talk about places you want to be, whether it's big cap or small cap within the technology universe. Yep. And, and I would want to be in small cap right now. I mean, I'm saying that from a place of assuming that most people are already in mega cap tech and probably overweight mega cap tech accidentally or on purpose based on performance last year. But I think you have to really consider some of those smaller cap names and what they can do for the economy going forward. Things like the digitization of society, the digitization of supply chains, contactless consumerism. Those are all smaller cap names and they deserve a look. They're something that I think get a good boost 
middle of this year through the second half of this year, and people should pay attention to them. It's also, it, it goes into this sort of value versus growth story, which is a little bit frustrating for me, but I don't think growth has to lose and if then value has to win. I think growth can continue to win here. We just have to shift what we're defining as growth and where we're allocated to growth. And I would do that in small cap tech and some of those healthcare names too. John and Jerry, and you have some names where people can make some money. That's what they're after. I do, Scott. Um, uh, as far as that tech trade that you were talking about, I like Teradata, TDC. Um, I love Palo Alto Networks, both of them intimately involved with the with cloud. In fact, Teradata's numbers were just through the roof, Scott. Um, triple digit well, look at gain. the stock. You never hear that. Yeah, exactly. 35% today or something like that. Um, so I'm not saying people should rush into that one today, but when you're looking for names outside of FANG, that is one that's going to be performing for a very long time. Same thing with cybersecurity over at Palo Alto. Um, you know, solar winds, when they fail and they did fail, uh, these guys were picking up the pieces, and that's why they're trading up near the highs as well. Uh, lastly, Palantir. Uh, which, as you know, I've loved since the IPO and before that, even when it was uh, privately held. I love that stock. I think analyzing data is key, and I think they will continue to really uh, provide insight into customers, um, into movements, and predicting uh, the predictive capability of Palantir is something that's unrivaled, Scott. All right, good stuff. Yeah, we're watching all those stocks that you talked about. Uh, higher today. And we didn't want this to be an either or conversation um, because as we've heard from you guys, you do think that you can own both growth and value um, and still expect some nice returns from both, as does Tom Lee, which is no surprise. He's been talking about the epicenter trade in his words. That's what he coined from the very beginning. He says the steepening yield curve. We've been watching the 10 year note yield uh, rise of late. He says that's another tailwind for epicenter stocks. Now, We've mentioned that as a potential headwind for growth stocks, that money could potentially come out of those names and into value. Nonetheless, I asked all of you to give me some names from the value or reopen area too. Um, Joe Terranova, Best Buy, Marriott, and you're looking at General Motors, hoping you get a pullback because that stock's been a runaway. Oh, boy, I wish Jimmy Jimmy nailed it. I wish I could get that pullback in General Motors so I could get into the name Marriott. Scott, you know, in the past couple of years, it's a name that I have uh, traded from the long side. I'm not currently in the name. I missed the trade. Bad on me. But this is a form of value that you look at it and you say, okay, it's got quality. And there is going to be a return. We're beginning to see it. I think a lot of the strength within the market this week is related to some of the positive news surrounding the expansion uh, of the vaccine rollout. And with that vaccine rollout, we're going to get to a point I've heard Josh talk about where every day is going to feel like New Year's Eve. Well, I'm not sure if that's going to be the case, but every day is going to kind of feel like we've got that summer mentality where we want to go out. Marriott has the brand in which they'll be able to deliver to the customer the type of experience that we're looking for. And they have the strength of the balance sheet. Best Buy, that's a name uh, that's in my quality momentum index. It's a name that I've owned previously, performing incredibly well. It's on the strength of the consumer right. electronic appetite and the strength that we're witnessing there. That's not going away, especially with the new iPhones that are being uh, offered by Apple for the remainder of this year. 
So let me do this. Let, let me come back at you um, sure. on Marriott. Guys, throw, throw up Marriott again. So, you know, you're very forthright in saying, OK, I missed it bad on me. Uh, the stock has had a nice little run over the last few months. You know, there, there's an intraday, but show me the three month because I think it was 26 percent or 27 percent. So so there it is. So for somebody playing yep. wherever they're playing today, Joe, who's looking at this stock, mm-hmm. is it too late for them to get in? even though maybe you missed it and doesn't sound like you're putting new money in this name, should they? Yeah, I I mean, I'm looking to my right because I'm looking to the stock so I could give the viewers uh, my full opinion on this. This is a stock that back in December of 2019 was trading at 153. Okay, if we have the ability where there is a return to normalcy, we're going to see engagement and travel for both the consumer and the enterprise community, which I suspect we will. This is a stock that will reach that 153. Now, what has also changed from December of 2019 is their balance sheet has actually gotten even better because they were smart enough. Management went out in the spring of 2020 and they did what they were supposed to do. They accessed the debt markets, they raised the capital and they positioned themselves for the growth opportunity that's going to be ultimately present itself for this company in 2021 and 2022. I also think they'll be the beneficiary of having the ability to be an acquirer because you're going to see consolidation in travel and leisure specifically for lodging. I think Marriott's going to benefit from that being an acquirer and longer term uh, that is going to add to the bottom line. So there's a lot more room to go as I look at it here. And it's a name, as I said, I'm sorry I missed it. I probably will get into it soon enough. No, because I think it's an important thing, right? If you think it has uh, part of the exercise Absolutely. here is the names you're giving me, the, the names you're giving me, presumably you think that investors, people watching our program today uh, still have an opportunity to make money in just not names that you you like, so to speak. That takes me to Absol- you, Jim. Absolutely. Um, because be, because sorry, sorry, Joe, um, to Jim, because Alaska Airlines I know that you, you've talked about that before, as you have Boeing and Marathon Petroleum. I want you to zero in for me on General Motors, okay? A stock that has sure. had a huge run. People who listened to you many, many months ago and who followed you into this name have made a lot of money and we're happy they've done that. What about here forward, though? That's when the game gets a little bit harder if you put fresh money to work. If you didn't own General Motors here, Jim, would you today? Yes. Thank you for asking this question. It's what's on my mind. So the short answer is yes, but here's how you do it. If you don't own it, they're reporting earnings next Wednesday. I think they're going to blow it out, and I'll explain why in a second. But you don't have to be a hero and put every last dollar in General Motors today. Figure out how much of General Motors you want to own, buy half of that today, and keep the rest of it for after earnings. Because I do think earnings are going to blow out, but that doesn't tell you how the stock's going to react. As you're pointing out, Scott, it's up 100% in six months. And I think it will be above 60 before too long and end the year uh, in the 70 to 80 range. The reason I think that this earnings call is going to be so good is everybody's focused on electric vehicles and autonomous. That's great. But underneath that, the traditional internal combustion engine business is going gangbusters. And you see that in sales volume. You see that in average transaction prices, which J.D. Power reports regularly. They're really quite high. Incentives are low. Dealer inventories are low, which okay. means GM hey, is Jim? cranking up its production Jim, lines. I'm going to break away. I'm going to go down to the, to the White House and President Thank Biden. Thank you all for being here. 
I'm accompanied by the Vice President and the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen. And I want to talk today about uh, our plan. And uh, the January job numbers came out today. And while we're grateful for everyone who found work and is earning a paycheck, it's very clear our economy is still in trouble. We added just 6,000 private sector jobs in the country last month. Overall, we added 49,000 jobs. And uh, this at a time when we have more than 10 million people out of work. Four million people have been out of work for six months or longer. And 2.5 million women have been driven from the workforce. 15 million Americans are behind in the rental payments. 24 million adults and 12 million children literally don't have enough food to eat. These aren't Democrats or Republicans. They're Americans. And they're suffering. They're suffering not because of anything they did. Through no fault of their own, they're suffering. Once-in-a-century virus has decimated our economy, and it's still wreaking havoc on our economy today. And so much of it is still about the virus. We're still in the teeth of this pandemic. In fact, January was the single deadliest month of the whole pandemic. We lost nearly 100,000 lives. I know some in Congress think we've already done enough to deal with the crisis in the country. Others think that things are getting better and we can afford to sit back and either do little or do nothing at all. That's not what I see. I see enormous pain in this country. A lot of folks out of work. A lot of folks going hungry, staring at the ceiling tonight, wondering, what am I going to do tomorrow? A lot of folks trying to figure out how to keep their jobs and take care of their children. A lot of folks reaching the breaking point. Suicides are up. Mental health needs are increasing. Violence against women and children is increasing. A lot of folks are losing hope. And I believe the American people are looking right now to their government for help to do our job, to not let them down. So I'm going to act, and I'm going to act fast. I'd like, to be, uh, I'd like to be doing it with the support of Republicans. I've met with Republicans. There's some really fine people who want to get something done, but they're just not willing to go as far as I think we have to go. I've told both Republicans and Democrats that's my preference to work together. But if I have to choose between getting help right now to Americans who are hurting so badly and getting dry, bogged down in a lengthy negotiation or compromising on a bill that's that, that, that's up to the crisis. That's an easy choice. I'm going to help the American people who are hurting now. That's why I'm so grateful to the House and the Senate for moving so fast on the American Rescue Plan. Here's what's in that plan. First, it puts $160 billion into our national COVID-19 strategy, which includes more money for manufacturing, distribution, and setting up of vaccine sites, everything that's needed to get the vaccines into people's arms. There's simply nothing more important than us getting the resources we need to vaccinate the people in this country as soon, as quickly as possible. So job number one of the American Rescue Plan is vaccines. Vaccines. The second, the American Rescue Plan 
is going to keep the commitment of $2,000. $600 has already gone out. $1,400 checks to people who need it. This is money directly in people's pockets. They need it. We need to target that money. So folks making $300,000 don't get any windfall. But if you're a two, if you're two, uh, uh, if you're a family that's a two uh, wage earner, each of the parents, one making 30 grand, one making 40 or 50, maybe that's a little more than, well, yeah, they need the money and they're going to get it. And here's what I won't do. I'm not cutting the size of the checks. They're going to be $1,400, period. That's what the American people were promised. Very quickly, here's the rest of my plan. It has money for food and nutrition so that folks don't go hungry. I think our Republican friends are going to support that. It extends unemployment insurance, which is going to run out on March 13th of this year to the end of September of this year because there's still going to be — we're still going to have high unemployment. It helps small businesses, thousands of whom have had to go out of business. It has money to help folks pay their health insurance. It has rental assistance to keep people in their homes rather than being thrown out in the street. It's got money to help us open our schools safely. It has money for child care, for paid leave. It gets needed resources of state and local governments to prevent layoffs, of essential personnel, firefighters, nurses, folks are school teachers, sanitation workers. It raises the minimum wage. It's big and it's bold, and it's a real answer to the crisis we're in. That's one more thing, and I want to say it very clearly on this, be very clear on this point. It's better economics. It not only addresses the immediate crisis we're in, it's better for the long-term economic health of our nation and our competitiveness. My plan creates more jobs, creates more economic growth, and does more to make us competitive with the rest of the world than any other plan. Don't take my word for it. Just look at what leading economists across the nation have said and in the world and, and, across, the, and across the ocean have said. Wall Street investment firm Moody says, if we pass the American Rescue Plan, it will lead to 4 million more jobs than otherwise would be created. The nonpartisan Brookings Institution has looked at the rescue, American Rescue Plan and said the GDP the, of, will reach pre-pandemic projections by 2021, meaning we'll have recovered by on, in, in 2021. Much sooner, by the way, than if we do nothing. Look, just this week, the Congressional Budget Office projected that if we don't take action, it would take until the year 2025 to return to full employment. There's also a growing chorus of top economists, right, center, left, that say we should be less focused on the deficit and more focused on the investments we make and can make now in jobs, keeping families out of poverty, and preventing long-term economic damage to our nation. The simple truth is, if we make these investments now, with interest rates at historic lows, we'll generate more growth, higher incomes, a stronger economy, and our nation's finances will be in a stronger position as well. And the payoff won't just be in jobs, but in our global competitiveness as well, because we'll be regaining our economic strength faster. So, the way I see it, 
The biggest risk is not going too big. If we go, it's if we go too small. We've been here before. When this nation hit the Great Recession that Barack and I inherited in 2009, I was asked to lead the effort on the Economic Recovery Act to get it passed. It was a big recovery package, roughly $800 billion. I did everything I could to get it passed, including getting three Republicans to change their votes and vote for it. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't quite big enough. It stemmed the crisis, but the recovery could have been faster and even bigger. Today, we need an answer that meets the challenge of this crisis, not one that falls short. And that's the issue facing the country right now. What Republicans have proposed is either to do nothing or not enough. All of a sudden, many of them have rediscovered fiscal restraint and the concern for the deficits. But don't kid yourself. This approach will come with a cost. More pain for more people for longer than it has to be. Secretary Yellen talks about the scarring effect that comes with prolonged economic pain. We see that scarring effect in economic data. But more important, we can see it in the lives of people living with long-term unemployment, living in hunger, at wit's end over how to keep their jobs, take care of their kids. And then she talks about the need to alleviate long-term suffering in the economy. We can do that. We don't have to wait until 2025 to get back to full employment, which will be the case if we don't do this. Again, independent analysis from places like Moody's on Wall Street, Brookings Institution, the American Rescue Plan could achieve that by the beginning, full employment, by the beginning of next year. So to me, this is, this is what this moment comes down to. Are we going to pass a big enough package to vaccinate people, to get people back to work, to alleviate the suffering in this country this year? That's what I want to do. Or are we going to say to millions of Americans who are out of work, many of whom have been out of work for six months or longer, who've been scarred by this economic and public health crisis, don't worry, hang on, things are going to get better. We're going to go smaller, so it's just going to take us a lot longer. Like until 2025. That's the Republican answer right now. I can't in good conscience do that. Too many people in the nation have already suffered for too long through this pandemic and economic crisis. And telling them we don't have the money to alleviate their suffering, to get to full employment sooner, to vaccinate America after eight trillion dollars in deficit spending over the past four years, much of it having gone to the wealthiest people in the country, is neither true nor necessary. We do have the resources to get to full employment sooner. We do have the tools to reduce a lot of suffering in this country. We just have to choose to use them. So it's time to act. We can reduce suffering in this country. We can put people back to work. We can control, gain control of this virus. That's what the American Rescue Plan does. And that's what I'm determined to do. And that's what I hope we're going to be able to do in the near term. So may God bless you all. May God protect our troops. And I truly believe real help is on the way. Thank you all so very much. Thank you. Mr. President, how could you better target? 
Okay, that is the president there on his COVID relief plan and the current state of the economy. President Biden saying, uh, quote, it's very clear our economy is in trouble. We're still in the teeth of the pandemic. I see enormous pain uh, in the country, said the president. Let's bring in Kayla Tausche, who's been listening in as well. So, Kayla, the sales pitch uh, is ongoing and President Biden making it very clear what he is not willing to negotiate on namely those $1,400 checks, which he says are going to be going out, period. And Scott, he doubled down on the White House's go big or go home approach, saying that the lesson that he learned with the 2009 stimulus, which he personally worked to pass at $800 billion, was not big enough and that the recovery simply took too long. He didn't mention Larry Summers by name, but that's an argument that is crafted to directly respond to a Washington Post op-ed that the former Obama administration economic official uh, wrote this morning, where he said that there is a significant difference between the economy back in 2009 and the economy now, and that President Biden's plan is more than three times what the economy right now is demanding. Now, Scott, you also saw a slight recalibration of the message coming from the White House to talk about full employment as a goal. Now, that is strategic because earlier this week, the Congressional Budget Office said that uh, with the stimulus money that's already trickling into the economy, that the U.S. should reach pre-pandemic economic growth by the middle of this year, which some Republicans are latching on to uh, as part of their argument that the size of this package is simply not what's needed. Uh, but the CBO report importantly said that the U.S. would not reach full employment from pre-COVID levels until the end of 2024. And so the White House is using that statistics to say uh, we simply can't afford as a country uh, to take that long to get back to full employment. And especially in the wake of this morning's jobs report, uh, that uh, the size of the package is what's needed. Although, Scott, as you mentioned, he did signal a willingness uh, to refine the threshold of who qualifies for those checks, if not the amount. Yeah. Kayla, thanks. Kayla Tausche for us in Washington, summing up the president and his comments just a few moments ago. Stocks, well, they're higher today. Records for the S&P, the Nasdaq, the Russell, in part because of expectations on a big COVID relief plan. When we come back, big earnings next week. We're going to take you through those. John's going to give you his unusual activity as well. We're showing you the S&P sector heat map today. There it is. S&P is good for 17, and it's led by materials and discretionary. We're back on the half right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report.
That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, another big week ahead for earnings, as we said. Look at those names, Disney, Cisco, General Motors, among others, all set to report. All right, Jim, we went through GM, so we don't have to do that again. But let's tee up Disney after what's been really a remarkable gain for that stock over the last three, four months. Yeah, it has been a remarkable gain. So I I think they would have to kind of discover life on Mars for something surprising to come out next week. And I'm not looking for something surprising. In in the long run this year, I'd really like to see some news on the theme parks reopening. I think that's overlooked. That was 40% of their operating income in 2019. Getting that back on track would be very important. Yeah. So, John Najarian, you you own Disney Calls. I'm wondering how good you think Mm -hmm. the results now have to be, given the run that I mentioned. Then I want to talk to you about Uber. We can ping pong with you and Joe because both of you own that stock. But give me give me the idea on Disney. okay? a lot of people may have gotten in on this thing because of Disney Plus and have ridden it up. Now what? How good does it have Mm -hmm. to be? Well, uh, this is another one of those, Scott, where I don't think people are willing to get off uh, because of exactly what Jim just said. They've got so much coming their way on the reopening that, uh, and by the way, sports getting bigger again. Uh, I, I think that's going to be huge for ESPN, but the reopening of those theme parks, even the cruise lines, Scott, coming back on. I own Carnival Cruise Lines, but Disney also has a pretty significant exposure in that area, and that's out in front of us. So I don't see anybody really willing to jump off Disney with both theme parks and sports right in front of them uh, about to really start adding to that bottom line. I just don't think they'll be jumping off. So so give me then your view on on Uber, which, you know, Josh has been talking about for an awfully long time now as one of the ultimate reopen and restart plays. What your expectations are as you own, uh, I guess, calls, right? You don't own the stock or do you own both? I own calls. Um, and call spread, Scott. And I, I love the upside here. Um, obviously, a very big reopening play that has done well even during the pandemic because of the food delivery. They had to basically fight for that uh, because Grubhub was the first one they wanted. Um, and uh, obviously, they had to find a different way to compete. They did that. They're, that deal is going to be closed um, in the next uh, few months. And I think that Uber just has a great ramp in front of it, Scott, Um, in particular because some public transportation, it'll be a while, it might be a whole year before they get back towards pre-pandemic levels in public transportation. That's great for Lyft and Uber. Yeah, I mean, you got a real sense this week from uh, Dara, the CEO, Dara Kazushahi, and the deal that they just did for Drizzly um, is very much into where they're sort of placing their long-term big bets on that, that food delivery, uh, food and beverage delivery, among, among other things which may come down the road. Joe, your expectation on Uber is what? Well, for this earnings report, mobility is going to look pretty ugly once again. It's probably going to be down about 45%, but it is about delivery. In Q3, you had 135% year-on-year growth. So while they're kind of waiting for mobility to rescale, Scott, delivery has gained momentum. Delivery now reaches a point where you're going to see EBITDA inflect in 2021 and you're also going to see when mobility returns and rescales again you're going to see an inflection point there as well so i'm staying with this name 
There has been in the past concerns about cash. That's been alleviated. They've got enough cash uh, to burn through about $6 billion for 2021. They're okay there. It's a name as it approaches its all-time high at 60. I think it breaks out to the mid to upper 60s very easily. All right, we're going to bounce for a couple. We'll come back. As I mentioned, John still has unusual activity. That is straight ahead on the half. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Time for unusual activity. Doc, what do you got for us? Well, Scott, uh, as Jim said, it's become a verb. Zoom. Uh, ZM is the symbol. Of course, it has come way down from 500 all the way down to that low 300 level. Uh, They raised about $1.75 billion, I believe, Scott, uh, the middle of last month. And they did it at about that 340, 360 level. Uh, The stock has zoomed since then, Scott, and is back over 400 to about 414. We saw them coming in again buying upside calls. These calls expire next week at the 430 strike. So next week, February 12th, 430s, I was already in Zoom calls. I added to it on this buying, which was even bigger than what we saw in the middle of last month. I think this one might be a blowout quarter for him, Scott. And I just love the way the stock's performing today. I want to talk to you about a few other names as well. Snap and Pinterest uh, have both hit new all-time highs today. You've sold calls in Snap, in Ford, in Pinterest. Talk to me. Cashing cash in some nice gains. Okay. Yeah, um, and the, they are all three great companies. I'm sure Jim and Joe and Liz would probably hold on to all three, but I had short-term calls, Scott, that were going to be expiring anyway. Um, in the case of Snap, it looked like it was going to be a bad move, because the stock looked weak in the after hours, has turned around and, of course, moved higher. And I said, I'm going to take that gift and cash out. Ford, we just had multiple weeks worth of upside call buying, took off the short-term calls in there uh, during the day today as it pushed towards 12. And lastly, Pinterest. I can't say enough nice things about Pinterest. The traders of the options of Pinterest have been spot on. It's like they have tomorrow's newspaper today. I followed them in. The stock hit a new all-time high, like you said, and the options just uh, let me take that profit today, Scott. Okay. We've got more trades ahead on the half. Uh, Before that, uh, take a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs today. Activision Blizzard, Etsy, Estee Lauder, big reopen trade. Kramer loves it. There's the stock today up better than 7%. We're back after this. It is time now for the futures outlook. Week ahead, a mix of economic and treasury data will likely have a chain reaction impacting on gold and elsewhere. Scott Nations explains. Futures traders are going to have lots of data to trade off of next week. On Wednesday, we'll get consumer price index data. And then on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to get supply from the U.S. Treasury, which is scheduled to sell $126 billion worth of notes and bonds. All of that data will be driving interest rates, and recently interest rates have been driving gold prices. So let's take a look at the gold futures contract. 
Ticker symbol for gold futures is GC. Each contract represents 100 ounces. The minimum price increment is 10 cents an ounce, and that means a single tick for a single futures contract is worth $10. Gold just got killed yesterday, and that was because of higher interest rates. Ended up losing $40 an ounce yesterday, getting back below $1,800 an ounce for the first time since the beginning of December. Now, all this volatility and all of next week's data means that there's a great opportunity for futures traders if they're trading gold. I hope you take advantage. All right, our thanks to Scott Nations there. We'll, of course, check back on that again next week. We'll come back. We still have final trades to do. We'll do it next. All right, final trades. Let's do it. Liz Young, you're up first. I am using financials today. Anybody worried about valuations? It's the cheapest sector in the S&P on a P.E. basis. And yield curve keeps steepening. I think there's a lot of benefit to be had through 2021. Yeah, they've been going up. All right. Thank you. You have a good weekend. John Nigerian. Uh, Dropbox, Scott. Uh, at the money calls, bought. They have earnings coming out February 18th. Uh, they traded about a 24 PE versus an industry that's 38. I think it's cheap, and I think they blow out the earnings. They've already announced some job cuts uh, in the middle of last month. So I look for more upside here, Scott. Okay, good stuff. Thank you as well, John Nigerian. Joe? Thank you. T. Rowe Price, trying to introduce new names as it relates to the gathering, management, and pricing of assets. You know I like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. T. Rowe yep. Price is a new one for our viewers to give consideration to. Okay. All right. Quickly, Farmer Jim. Apple. Apple, Scott. Apple. All right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, three times is better than one. <laughs> All, All right. right. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.